Welcome to the Robert Lewis Sermons Podcast, a collection of sermons from Dr. Lewis during his time as teaching pastor at Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. We desire to see all who are Christ followers grow in faith and maturity through the use of this podcast. Here's this week's message. So I'd like you to take your Bibles. We've been in 1 Thessalonians and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We're going to pick up in our series there. And uh, if you're new here, let me encourage you from time to time as we do to, uh, to have a Bible. It's so important that you are able to open the pages of Scripture with us and as we talk to look at the words of Scripture that we see. There are many great translations out there. We use the New American Standard here in worship. A common translation. There are great translations, but a common translation so we can all see and read together. So if you're new, you're a newcomer, and you sometimes are wondering where we are, you might pick up a New American Standard at a local bookstore and follow along with us. And I hope today you even mark your Bibles up a little bit as you look into these great portions of Scripture concerning the return of Jesus Christ. You know, in that regard, I'd like to start with a story this morning. You know, six years ago, almost to the month, my mother was in the last hours of her life. And... uh, In that hot summer, my brother John and I traveled back and forth to Louisiana to care for her, though obviously it was more difficult for my brother being in Denver, Colorado than it was for me being here in Little Rock. But on the morning of August 5th of that year, my mother took kind of her final turn down towards death. Kidney failure ensued. There was wild erratic heartbeat. Uh, her breathing became very labored. Sometimes it's, it's an amazing thing to listen to people in their final hours breathe because there's a breath and you think that's it, and then suddenly another breath comes. They're still alive. The doctor who came in on that day said to me, said, you know, I, I don't think your mother has more five, four or five hours left maximum. So I immediately went to the phone and called my brother John, who had just gotten back to Denver, told him of that grim prognosis and told him he needed to come to bring the family. And he told me, he said, I'm, I'm going to have to take our car. So he got in the car and he said, I won't be there till four o'clock the next day. And I said, well, mom will probably be gone by then, according to what the doctors have to say. Well, I went into my mother's bedroom and I whispered in her ear that John was coming, that he would be there tomorrow at four. And, uh, her face kind of lit up. She was, as I said, in those final hours, and she smiled a, a rather unusual smile that I didn't understand until uh, hours later, what she really meant by that smile. But all through the morning, that morning, expecting her death, I held her hand and kissed her face and stroked her hair and waited for the inevitable to come. Then that afternoon, I held her hand and stroked her face and whispered in her ear and waited for the inevitable to come. It was midnight and I was still holding her hand and uh, kissing her face and talking to her, waiting for that inevitable moment. And I kept starting, I started to wonder, where was the inevitable? And on and on we went through the night the same way and I would take little naps and get up and I would go over and it would be still in that bedroom. And all of a sudden I'd hear out of the darkness, another breath. And on and on it went. I remember the nurse came in the next morning and she was shocked to see my mother alive. She said, you know, nothing in her body is working. And then four o'clock the next afternoon came around. 
And John and his family drove up in the car, and he walked in the door, and his first words to me were, uh, well, when did mom die? And I said, John, you're not going to believe this. She's still alive. Of course, he was delighted, and uh, he ran into her bedroom, and he hugged her, and suddenly she had that strange smile across her face again. And almost instantaneously, you know, one of those mystical messages that occur between family members, it suddenly dawned on me that my mother had battled for 32 hours that inevitable force of death because she wanted to have her two boys standing by her bed before she died. My brother turned to me like that and he said, I'm so glad I'm here before mom dies. And then we both turned back She's gone. Just like that. I realized in that moment that my mother had nothing inside her that worked except one thing. That's what I want to talk to you about today. What she had left was the power of hope. You know, hope is an incredible fuel for people's lives. People who have hope live in a totally different way than people who lack that hope. Now, there are all kinds of of hope in the world today. But the kind I'm going to talk to you about this morning is the kind of hope that gives fuel and energy and enthusiasm to life. It brings a, and it breathes a tremendous optimism to life. And it makes people healthier and happier and purer and more stable and more persevering than those who don't have that kind of hope. That's what you find in the pages of the New Testament here in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5. Hope is at the center of Paul's instruction for us this morning. It's a special kind of hope. It's a hope that the world knows very little about, and if it does, it scoffs at it and laughs at it as just dreamers who are in the clouds. But it's the hope that says it's not over even when it's over, Yogi. It's not over. There's something more. There is a life after death And in these two chapters, it's talked about in vivid detail. And all the events surrounding this new life that's going to occur, this new paradigm, this new change of history, that oftentimes we don't think about, but if we understood it, if we really understood it, it would have a tremendous impact in its hopefulness on how we live in the day-to-day. You know, the first century was a lot like our day. There was a tremendous skepticism around life after the grave. And uh, people in this day had lost that kind of energy-giving hope. Modern Roman philosophy had given up. Epicureans ruled the day. You know what Epicureans were. They were the hopeless livers who said pleasure is all there is. We've got to milk everything we can get out of this life, so eat, drink, and be merry. For tomorrow, tomorrow we die. That's it. If you walk along the gravestones of those sepulchers that stood out from the ground of first century Rome, you would find gravestones that would have inscriptions like the following. That's a true historical gravestone right outside of Rome that reads, I was not, I became. I am not, I care not. Life is hopeless. All there is, is now. And yet into this era of grave thinking and hopeless living, Christianity cast a radical, kind of mind-boggling, bright, new hope. The paradigm shift that shook the first century world that spread churches that now encircle the globe 
lived on this simple truth, and that is that life need not end in death. That life is extended, and it's extended in the credible imagery and person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, people in the first century stopped with that kind of thinking, just like modern skeptics and pagans would today. They would go, whoa, what are you talking about? Jesus Christ, alive, life after death, what do you mean? And for whom? And when does this life begin? What are you talking about? Well, I want you to know these are the very questions that are being dealt with with these young first century believers. They were asking the same thing. They had heard in this dying world the whisper that Jesus is coming. Just like my mom heard, John's coming. And it inspired hope, but there were still questions, big questions like, coming for whom? And that, if you look in your Bible, is what he talks about in verses 13 through 18 in the close of chapter 4. And then coming when? And that's the discussion he has in verses 1 through 11 of chapter 5. But I want you to notice at the end of these two sections, and you might underline them, the key is he's trying to encourage the church, this young church, with hope. That's why he ends the first section with verse 18 of chapter 4. He says, therefore, comfort one another with these words, with these words of hope. When he finishes his next section, when he gets to verse 11, he says, therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you're doing. With what? With hope. This hope. Because if you have this hope, I want you to know you're going to live healthier, happier, holier, purer, more enduring lives if you really, really believe this. There's history here. There's reality here. This day is really coming. And I want you to know it. So let's begin in verse 13 where Paul starts the discussion of hope for whom. He starts out by saying, but we don't want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died, if we really believe that, and that He rose again, even so God will bring with Him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. You know, this verse introduces us to the confusion these young believers were having. Their confusion centered around the believers who had fallen asleep. That's Paul's statement of those who died because he already had hope that they were going to wake up. That's why he says fall asleep. <clears throat> but these believers in Thessalonica really thought that Jesus Christ could come in their lifetime. They were real excited about that. But they were also confused as to what happens to those people who were believers in Christ who died. Would they miss this great coming? Was it just for those alive on planet earth? And would somehow they maybe even be left out of that coming? That's what Paul is beginning to address for them. So what he does is he reassures them in the verses that follow. In essence, he starts saying to them, no, let me tell you, your dead Christian friends, just like our dead Christian friends, and family members, and loved ones, and those we've lost in tragedies. He said, I want you to know they will not miss anything when Jesus Christ comes back. This is as certain as your belief in Jesus Christ Himself. Do you see the if, even so of verse 14? You might even circle it. For if we're certain that Jesus Christ died and rose, if we really that's the essence of the Gospel. If we really believe that, then we should even so be just as certain about the fact that God will bring with Him all those who died with a faith in Christ. 
Now, he says that to help them stop grieving and to be hopeful, and I hope that's hopeful to you. But then there's the next question. He says, well, how will the dead join us who are alive when Christ comes back? And that's what he talks about starting in verse 15. He says, for this we say by the word of the Lord, not our word, but by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall not perceive those who died or fallen asleep. For the Lord Himself will descend, and here's this great imagery now beginning to take place at the second coming. For, for the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. And then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with Him. Now in these short verses, Paul shares his conviction. It's really his conviction about the second coming of Christ. He says, you know, just as they laughed about the first coming, here's the second coming that will catch the world totally by surprise. And it will be an incredible ending. Do you love great endings? You know, it's funny. I think every one of us, because I watch culture, every one of us create things that will climax in a great ending. We love the sports games that don't end in 45 to nothing. We like the games that are 13 to 7 with 0.5 tenths of a second left and the last play. And you throw the ball in the end zone and the guy catches it and they kick the extra point. You win 14 to 13. And the coach runs out on the field with his hands in the air and all he's doing is just screaming. Words cannot express the exhilaration of that great ending. Same way with a great song when it finishes. It always finishes. I've noticed with musicians, especially in these moments of rapture kind of things, where we end on a powerful finish and we, we get lifted up and our heart starts extending from our chest and we want more. But we can only go that far. Great sunset. As C.S. Lewis says, you want to enter into that sunset and grab it, but just before its splendor, it's gone. But something in us wants to go even beyond that. We love great endings. Now I want you to know there will be no ending that has ever occurred that will be able to compare with the spectacular ending that Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Savior, is right now planning to finish history as we know it. It will end life as we have thought about it for thousands of years. It will break all kinds of historical paradigms and academic pursuits. People will think they know, but they won't know. And all of culture will collapse, and all the cultures of the world will be finished under the weight of His return. And at His return, life will begin in a new way that defies even our greatest imagination. You could sit and think about what it's going to be like in eternity for a hundred years, and you would only be scratching at the surface of the splendor and the wonder of the world to come. History will lose its veil. And what will be seen by all is they will see history for what it really was all along. Not history at all. But His story is what history is about. His life and His kingdom. And it will be sudden, as our text tells us, with a shout, the Lord will descend. It will be universal. All will see it. And it will be noisy. There will be trumpets and cheers and shouts. And those are just the illustrations the imagery of what really will break forth and even go beyond that. 
as he enters into history. But let me tell you, here's the exciting part. That's just the beginning of the excitement. The real excitement is this. When Jesus Christ comes back, He's going to come back for you and me. That's what really makes it exciting. Sinful me. Compromised me. Me who's always been trying to figure it out in my deceitful heart how to live for Him and yet with one hand in the cookie jar. You know what I mean? Just trying to get as much out of this life as we can without spoiling the end. And He sees all of that and He puts up with all of that and He sees us in our trials and tribulations and our shortcoming. And yet in spite of all that, the reason He's coming back is for you and for me. Because He wants to be with us. Is that not a wonder? And He wants us together, all of us, not just here, not just now. He wants us all together. Do you notice what He says? He says in verse 15, it says, then we are alive and remain, we'll be caught up. As those who come out of their graves with their new fashioned bodies and we receive ours, we're all going to meet the Lord together. We get to enjoy one another. You get to enjoy great-grandpa again. I get to enjoy my relatives centuries back who placed their faith in Christ. You know, we went back and looked at a crest that my grandmother had uncovered in Germany. It was the crest of the little fiefdom that the Lewis clan was part of. And the crest said, in God we glory. I look forward to seeing those people. I look forward to seeing mom. I look forward to seeing my friends. I look forward to seeing you. Because I'm going to be with him. But let me tell you what's even more important. I'm going to be with you. Forever. The kingdom of God is what he's addressing here. And you know what's so tactful about God? Notice that no one gets in the reception line first. You know, the dead come out of the ground first, and we get to be with them, and we all go together. So everyone's there together in front of him. What a tactful God we've got that no one goes before anyone else. And thus it says, we shall be always with the Lord. I want you to know, anyone of history who's embraced Christ, or any of you who've embraced Christ as Savior, this that I have read to you is how life as we have known it on this planet will one day end and then begin again. All around the person of Jesus Christ in a spectacular face-to-face encounter. That's why Paul ends this section is he's just dreaming of it, just scratching on it, just starting the process for us. He says, so brethren... Comfort one another with these words. Have hope. You know, we all need hope. Some of you are struggling in your marriages. Some of you are dying under a sin that just keeps compromising your life. Some of you worry about your money and you wonder why you don't have the things everybody else does. But you know, in the midst of that, there's hope. Hope. We need to live in hope. We're going somewhere. We're going to meet someone. And let me tell you, it's going to be spectacular, Paul says. That's hope for whom? Now he turns to the second question in chapter 5. Hope for when? Notice how the text begins. He says, now as to the times and epochs. Epoch doesn't do it for me. Does it do it for you? I like what the New English Bible says. It says, now as to the dates and times. Brethren, you have no one... You have no need for me to write anything else to you. I I, kind of translate it this way. Now concerning when all this will actually happen. I think that's what he's getting at. He's scratching it. 
When is all this going to come about? He says, you have no need of us to write anything to you. Evidently, Paul had already told them a lot about the second coming and the times that would precede the second coming of Jesus Christ. He had probably shared with them that, that in the concluding season of history, there would be all kinds of things that would break forth that would warn those who are in faith that we are entering the final season of history. And some of those things, by the way, as I'll share with you later, are quite frightening. But don't despair, because Jesus Christ is going to come back. And we want to say, well, when? And I'm sure Paul had already told them about this issue of when. He said, you know, we can know the season. We can get a sense of the season, but no man knows the day or the hour. You can't know it exactly. In fact, Jesus Christ says, no one knows, not even me. And I'm the one coming back. Because only the Father knows when that's going to be. So don't get into date setting. And, and by the way, that's what the Thessalonians did a little later on. They got so into it thinking Jesus Christ was going to come back in their day that they sold their goods, sold their houses, a lot of them just sat around and waited. So we had to write 2 Thessalonians. <laughs> and 2 Thessalonians says, guys, don't do that. Don't get into the date setting because when you do that, you quit living the kind of life I want you to live. So he has to rebuke them in the second letter. But right here, he's telling them, I've told you a lot about Jesus Christ's return in the days that will precede that. And it's going to be a big surprise to some who don't believe this. And that's why you move into verse 2. He says, For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. And while they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like birth pangs upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. What Paul's reminding these Thessalonians about is in this age of spiritual skepticism, which will follow age after age, by the way, many, many people, many people will be totally caught off guard by the way history will complete itself. It will be a total surprise. They think history is going to go on as usual. And they scoff and they mock those who believe history will end in Christ just as they scoffed and mocked those who believed that Jesus Christ would come the first time. Now, surprises can take many forms. There are surprises that are very sweet. And I want you to know, a few weeks ago when the curtain came down and I was sitting there out in the audience going, you know, I don't remember us planning the curtain to come down. <laughs> and the tribute that followed to us as the pastoral staff, uh, that was a sweet surprise. Some surprises are funny. Uh, I heard this week about Jerry Richardson, one of our elders, who's a dentist. He was eating at a fast food place and he bit into a hamburger and all of a sudden he bit down on something hard and spit it out and there was a big filling. You know, how, you know how irritating that is when you get a filling that falls out and there it was. But you know, that was just the beginning of surprises for him. Because right after that he went back and he looked in his mouth and he hadn't lost any fillings. <laughs> Yeah, that's what I say. Woo! Yeah, and the question is, whose filling was it? I mean, you could just see the cook back there with the meat going right there in the meat. <laughs> some surprises are funny. Let me tell you, for the people of verses 2 and 3, some surprises are awful. Some surprises are awful. It is going to be a tremendous surprise for a whole world of people 
who have thought of us as fools. And who have thought that this world is going to go on in the same frame and structure as it has ground, ground itself out year after year for thousands of years. There's a big surprise coming for that unbelief. Terrible events, really. And many people will think that, no, we'll somehow solve it. There'll be our leaders, and our leaders will shout to us, we'll work it out. We have an answer. We'll correct the problem. Peace. Peace in our time. Safety. We can do it. But I want you to know it won't be okay this time. History and the world as we have known it will end. And I want you to note that the people who are there in unbelief will not escape. Just as those who are in unbelief in our age will ultimately not escape. See, first comes death, the Scripture says, and then judgment. And all of what the Epicureans thought in their eating and their drinking and their licentious living and their thoughtlessness about life will somehow be recalled before a living and holy and righteous God. But now look at verses 4 and 5. He said, but you, but you, you might underline that. See, he's really got an emphasis here. But you, brethren, are not in the dark <laughs> that the day should come upon you like a thief. It shouldn't happen that way to you. For you are the sons of light and the sons of day, and we are not of the night nor of the darkness. See, we might not know the day or the hour, but the season shouldn't catch us by surprise. All through the Scriptures, from the Old Testament to the New, God has been continually using His prophets and Jesus and His apostles to give us signs that the season is near. Now, we're kind of in a day in which uh, top ten lists are real popular. And uh, some of you wait up to grab David Letterman right before you go to bed so you can hear his top ten list. Well, I have a top ten list here today. I don't mean it to be funny, but I'm just using kind of the style of the day. But from the home office of the Old Testament and New Testament, I'd like to offer to you what I think are my top ten signs for knowing, for a Christian knowing he would be in the season of Christ's return. Here's number ten. Daniel the prophet thousands of years ago said that in the end times there would be a global explosion of knowledge and travel. I want you to know when he wrote those words, he didn't even know what was on the other side of the river, much less what was on the other side of the earth. But he said when the end comes, shortly before the end, one of the signs that would precede the end before Jesus Christ wrapped it all up is there would be a global explosion of knowledge and travel. Sign number nine would be this. There will be a threatening sense of lawlessness throughout the earth. And people will become hard and callous. Jesus said people's love worldwide would grow cold because morality would be at an all-time low. No one could trust one another. You know, if you can't trust anybody, it becomes harder and harder to be vulnerable. Sign number eight, false Christ will arise and they will mislead many. Sign number seven, there will be an increase in New Age religions with powerful and popular appeal. In fact, Jesus said, so powerful that even those of faith would tend to pull away into these false ideologies. Sign number six was that there would be political and economic pressure 
that would be used to force people to worship a secular God. And it would be strong pressure. Governments would begin to push and use force to move people away from real faith to the worship of secularism. Sign number five would be a marking or numbering system. John the Apostle talks about this in the Revelation. A marking or numbering system on the flesh which enables people on the earth to buy or sell. That will be established worldwide, the Scripture says. Sign number four would be that the Gospel will be presented to the whole earth. In spite of all that, the Gospel will go forth to every nation, every race, every tribe. Sign number three would be a growing worldwide persecution of Christians. Sign number two, the temple in Jerusalem will be rebuilt a third time. And finally, the number one sign would be a charismatic, supernatural acting leader will one day gain control of the nations of the world. And he will promise and deliver peace, the Scripture says, for a short time. But then his kingdom and the world will unravel until the real ruler comes and establishes the new world order, Jesus now I give you those to remind you and to remind any generation that the Bible has not left us in the dark. We know what the day of the Lord's season will be like and it should not overtake us as a thief in the light. Well, since we know that Jesus Christ is coming back for us and that's the good news, and since we know in the season before He returns there's going to be trouble, that's the bad news, then how do we live now? How does this information spill back to us from those future events. Paul here lists three responses. First of all, look at verse 6. He says we, shall, we should stay alert to the times. He says, so then... Now he's kind of summarizing. Anytime you see a so then, he's trying to summarize. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. Now, I think he says that not because we need to be date setting, so much as we need to be thinking about that hope and how it affects us now. Hope, real hope, should have an impact on your life. If you don't believe it, if you don't consider it, then you grow dull. And your life grows sinful. So stay alert. Notice secondly, he says we should always keep our life-changing armor on. Look at verse 8. He says, but since we are of... I like this phrase. Since we are of the day. You know, everybody's got t-shirts with things on it. Maybe we just need to have the day on ours. That's who we are. We're people of the day. Since we're people of the day, let us be sober. And then he talks about this armor. He says, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. Which means on that day, we are marked not for the judgment of God, when we come to that day, apart from our, our, our lives, maybe they've been weak, maybe they've been strong in faith, I don't know where you are. But when that day comes, we're not marked for judgment because we're of the day. We're marked for salvation. That's what verse 9 says, for God has not destined us for wrath, but He's destined us for obtaining salvation. And since we are of the day, Let's live in the light of that. Let's put our armor on. And the armor he mentions is, first of all, that faith and love that needs to cover our hearts. You know why it needs to do that? Because our hearts are deceitful. And when we have that armor off, our hearts lead us astray. But when we put the armor of faith and love on, it leads us to a life of service rather than selfishness. 
Then he says you need to put a helmet on. You need to put the helmet of hope on. And you know why that helmet is so important? Because if you take hope off, then what you start thinking is that this life is all there is. And I want every one of you to know, when you live that way, you live foolishly. You make, you make mistakes that you regret. And as you move to the end of your life, you live that way, you'll look back and you'll go, I have no delight in what I've done. The helmet of hope is to help you be energetic and pure and steadfast and firm in the way you live. So put on the armor of God. That's what real hope should do. It should inspire in faith and love. It should lead to a life of faithfulness. That's why he ends up with a third response to encourage and build one another up. That's what he says in verse 11. He says you're doing that, but keep on doing that. When you see a friend or a family member or a member of the church who's struggling in their life and they're wondering, why is it worth it? Why is it worth it to stay faithful in my marriage? To stay available to my children? To give my money away? To pay my debts on time? To live in purity in a world of licentious sexuality? Why? Because brother or sister, we have hope. We have hope that one day all of that will come into the light of the day. And we are of the day. And let us not look at that day as something to shrink back from, but something to run to like a sunset. To run into the glory of the freedom of the kingdom of God. That's why it's worth it. And though you may not know that now, just like a team who's down by 20 points in the fourth quarter, if you will stay faithful now, and in the last tick of the clock you score and win, you'll know why it's worth it. And let me tell you, you will win. Because we have a Savior who has ensured all of that for us. For us! Our great, bright hope. Jesus Christ. How's your hope here today? In a world of spiritual skepticism, you know, now at the bottom of the page, I've just got this little silly diagram called a hope meter. And I want you to fill it out around two things. One, how you think, and one, how you live. Because that's how you need to analyze hope. How do you think? If you were to take a little line with zero being I have no hope to 100 being I have great hope, and I were to say to you, just you and me, we were together, I'd say, do you really believe Jesus Christ is coming back? Do you really believe that? Where would you put that on your hope meter? But then let me say, let me say I got a little more personal. Uh, let's go beyond just how you think, because a lot of people think He's coming back. What if I asked you, well, how has the hope of Jesus Christ coming back impacted the way you're living? So that's another way of analyzing your hope meter. I want you to take your Bible and turn to 1 John chapter 3. I want to read you one verse as we're finishing up here. Because I think He answers that. I think He answers that. In 1 John 3, he exhorts the church there. He says, Beloved, now we are children of God. And it has not yet appeared what we shall be, 
We know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him just as He is. Then He comes to verse 3. And He says this, And everyone who has... Now listen. (laughs) Everyone who has this hope, what? Fixed on Him, does what? Purifies Himself just as He is pure. See, it tells us that real hope should impact the way we live. In thinking about that day, we should be thinking about it in ways that we live now and thinking about it in terms of our business decisions and thinking about it in terms of our moral decisions. For some of you, in thinking about your dating life and how far you go in that dating life and thinking about how we use our money and thinking about how we use our time and thinking about why we're here and what we're here for. See, all of that hope of the future should radiate its light, that day's light, into our world now. You want to draw a second line? Then draw a second line and say, how has the hope of His second coming impacted the purity of my life? Zero, 25, 50, 100. Go ahead, draw it on there. Talk to yourself for a moment. The Scripture declares that we will all meet Jesus Christ one day. That's a fact. Face to face. Spectacular. Glorious. Exhilarating. Life changing. There will be those who will shrink back in shame. There will be those who will shout in glory. There will be some who will be marked out in particular. I believe when the Lord returns, there will be some that He will honor, that He will commend, that He will reward, that He will praise, and who knows how eternity spills out. He might even use in a special way in His kingdom on the other side. But I know who those people are because the Scriptures mention them over and over again. It will be those who in their day, despite their circumstances, in spite of their pain, in spite of the challenges that were before them, were the ones who heard the whisper of the day. Jesus is coming. And who held out because they had their hope up. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for this truth from Your Word. It reminds us why it is worth it. And Lord, though we would acknowledge the fact that our world, it would laugh at what I've just said. Lord, I thank You for the faith to believe You. For the faith to receive You. For the faith to obey You. And for the faith to hope in You. And I personally look forward to the day where I get to meet You and everyone else in the kingdom of God. We give You praise, dear Jesus, this day. Help us to serve You this week in hope. It's in Your name that we pray. Amen. Welcome to the Robert Lewis Sermons Podcast, a collection of sermons from Dr. Lewis during his time as teaching pastor at Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. 
We desire to see all who are Christ followers grow in faith and maturity through the use of this podcast. Here's this week's message. 